Hi, and welcome to the Verity La Poetry Podcast. I'm Alice Allen. In this podcast, we interview poets who have been published in our journal and we discuss work that's important to them. In this episode, episode 10, Michelle and I chat with Eileen Chong, who is a poet who lives and works in Sydney, Australia. We chat quite a bit about Eileen's forthcoming book, Rainforest, which will be out from Pitt Street Poetry very soon. The poet Eileen chose to talk about is Lee Young Lee, and we look closely at his poem, Persimmons, before we talk about Eileen's own poem, Measure, which is published in Veritila recently. We also talk about Eileen's relationship to language and the diversity of Asian Australian experiences. One of the things that really struck me, Eileen, reading Painting Red Orchids and um, also the forthcoming manuscript for Rainforest, is that a lot of your poems are very much in conversation, not only with other poets, but with um, family, people uh, who are close to you, and also with yourself at different points in time. Um, which I thought was particularly interesting. But one of the poets who recurs throughout Painting Red Orchids and then reappears in Rainforest is uh, Lee Young Lee. And I was wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about his influence on your writing or his role. Lee Young Lee is, as you know, an American poet. And he's um, one of the, I suppose he's, probably now quite in the canon of American poetry. Um, he started writing, um, I think, in the 80s, and uh, he lives in Chicago. And I've never met Liang Lee or had any direct correspondence with him. Um, I narrowly missed meeting him in Singapore. Uh, he was at the Singapore Writers' Festival last year, and I couldn't go, or maybe it was early this year. Um, but I feel sure that, you know, hopefully one day our lives will, will cross. But um, it, it doesn't really matter to me almost if you don't meet a poet because you meet the poet through their poems. And Li Yang Li for me is such a cornerstone um, because of, I think, the kind of poems he writes. It's just so emotionally vulnerable and, um, but also honest. And one of the things I love about Li Yang Li's poetry is that he doesn't worry about, um, taking time in his poems. It, it, it's very interesting how he almost kind of slows time down and he's not afraid of the long poem. He's quite a master of the short poem as well, but he's not afraid of the long poem and he kind of takes you through this journey um, of, of, of his mind almost. And I, I, I talked to a student of mine yesterday about Li Yang Li and, and it's almost like his poems are rooms in, in houses um, and maybe in the house of him and or his his work, and then even within the poem, within even within a poem, he takes his he takes you generously into the house of the poem, and then he takes his time in unfolding the different rooms in the poem to to you. So it's really it's really quite lovely. Yeah, yeah. I definitely felt that reading his work as well. There's a definite sense of being invited into a space, and there's a a slowing down, a sense of slowing down that I get from his work, which is really fantastic. And a great expansiveness in his work. You, you get a, a real sense um, when you when you look at the greatest kind of um, 
Chinese art, you know, Chinese paintings, Chinese brush paintings, Song Dynasty paintings, you get a sense that it's only a micro, it's a, 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 at once a microcosm of the world um, is represented in that painting, but also an awareness that we're only scratching the surface of that world at the same time. And I think it is very astute of you to, to observe that I'm often in conversation in my poems with um, other poets or, you know, in, in engagement with um, the world around me, but also with my other selves. And the poem Persimmons by Li Yangli was a, a, a wonderful poem for me because for me it just opened up the notion of what can be done within a poem and how to sustain a long poem and all its parts while keeping the, the focus really um, very tight, you know, and, and how to sustain that sort of suspension of disbelief within the poem, but also also allowed enough slack, you know, for, for that the reader to kind of traverse the different parts of himself, you know. I, I just It's just, a, for me, it's a real masterwork. And also, personally, persimmons were um, my paternal grandmother's favorite fruit. Mm. And every time we went to visit my paternal grandmother in Malaysia, I lived in Singapore and my grandmother lived across the border, my mother would buy a whole tray of persimmons. And I'd be like, why are you buying that? And she's like, oh, we're going to see your grandma. So every time I see the fruit, it reminds me of the only person I knew who ate that fruit. Mm. And I think also as, as a poem, it, it captures the cultural differences really in a very generous manner. And in the notion of, um, of language as well, as he, as a young child, navigates the languages um, because he was a refugee. So Liang Li was a refugee from China because he was um, uh, of a quite a persecuted family. So he often doesn't um, talk about this, but he was the grandson of a political dissident. And he fled to America via Indonesia. Um, and was a refugee and went to America and started life again in Chicago. So persimmons. In sixth grade, Mrs. Walker slapped the back of my head and made me stand in the corner for not knowing the difference between persimmon and precision. How to choose persimmons. This is precision. Ripe ones are soft and brown spotted. Sniff the bottoms. The sweet one will be fragrant. How to eat. Put the knife away. Lay down newspaper. Peel the skin tenderly, not to tear the meat. Chew the skin, suck it and swallow. Now eat the meat of the fruit. So sweet, all of it to the heart. Donna undresses, her stomach is white. In the yard, dewy and shivering with crickets, we lie naked, face up, face down. I teach her Chinese. Crickets, chiu chiu, dew, I've forgotten. Naked, I've forgotten. Ni, wo, you and me. I part her legs, remember to tell her she is beautiful as the moon. Other words that got me into trouble were fight and fright, wren and yarn. Fight was what I did when I was frightened. Fright 
was what I felt when I was fighting. Wrens are small, plain birds. Yarn is what one knits with. Wrens are soft as yarn. My mother made birds out of yarn. I loved to watch her tie the stuff. A bird, a rabbit, a wee man. Mrs. Walker brought a persimmon to class and cut it up so everyone could taste a Chinese apple. Knowing it wasn't ripe or sweet, I didn't eat but watched the other faces. My mother said every persimmon has a sun inside, something golden, glowing, warm as my face. Once in the cellar, I found two wrapped in newspaper, forgotten and not yet ripe. I took them and set both on my bedroom windowsill, where each morning a cardinal sang, the sun, the sun. Finally understanding he was going blind, my father sat up all one night waiting for a song, a ghost. I gave him the persimmons, swelled, heavy as sadness, and sweet as love. This evening, in the muddy lighting of my parents' cellar, I rummage, looking for something I lost. My father sits on the tired wooden stairs, black cane between his knees, hand over hand, gripping the handle. He's so happy that I've come home. I ask how his eyes are, a stupid question. All gone, he answers. Under some blankets, I find a box. Inside the box, I find three scrolls. I sit beside him and untie three paintings by my father, hibiscus leaf and a white flower, two cats preening, two persimmons so full they want to drop from the cloth. He raises both hands to touch the cloth, asks, which is this? This is Persimmon's father. Oh, the feel of the wolf tail on the silk, the strength, the tense precision in the wrist. I painted them hundreds of times, eyes closed. These I painted blind. Some things never leave a person. Scent of the hair of one you love, the texture of Persimmon's in your palm, the ripe weight. That's just a marvellous poem. It's gorgeous. Thank you so much, Elaine. I've, I have never read that before. I'm going to read it many, many times. I know. It's, it's wonderful. Very complex, isn't it? Yeah. And and while it's generous and it, it doesn't – what I love about, you know, good poetry like, like Lee Young Lee's is mm. he never tells you what to feel. Mm. He never tells you anything except what he sees. And he's never afraid – of showing his limitations and his vulnerabilities and what he does not know. And I thought that was just so powerful because when you're a beginning writer, you often feel like, you know, when you when you write a poem, you better know everything you're going to say because you're up there on the, on the podium and people are going to interrogate you. And I think it's a very powerful thing to to understand how to be vulnerable in a poem. And, and it's very liberating as well for someone like Lee Young Lee to be able to say, you know, I've forgotten. And especially in the context of language, of mm. speaking different languages, um, 
and to say I do not know or I I was wrong mm. I think it's a, it's a very powerful um, thing to say in, in in poetry and in life so in your um, poems Aileen um, I was reading I was lucky enough to have a little read of Rainforest which is um, due out very soon um, and um, congratulations. Thank you. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful collection. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I was really um, struck by the care, uh, the arrangement of the book uh, and how the beginnings sort of linked to the end, how you've separated into four points, east, south, west and north, and the sort of journey that it took me on. It was really, really um, very, very moving, I thought. Um, and I wanted to ask you about um, the name Rainforest, the title of the book, and how that um, connects to your, um, or one part of your Chinese name, and why you chose to name the book Rainforest. I grew up in Singapore, and um, I had to learn Chinese up to the point, uh, I think until I was 16. But I was always really, really bad at the Chinese language, and it was a constant source of terror for me. Um, and I, I wish it hadn't been so. And I, 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 part of me thinks that it was the way that the Chinese language was, um, Chinese language lessons were structured in Singapore. It was very much focused on rote learning, and just, that just really wasn't my forte. You know, I'm very, uh, I'm a very, I'm a very immersive learner. Um, and when I was twelve, I had a wonderful Chinese teacher named Zhou Lao Shi, Mrs. Chow. And she was the first Chinese teacher who took the time in our classroom to talk about etymology. And I hadn't realized at that time, I had obviously, uh, you know, I went on to study linguistics and to specialize in etymology. So, um, it, but in English, you know, and I hadn't realized what an what a impact that caused on me. And she went through the entire class's names and talked about the meaning behind their names. The character of my personal name, Lin, um, comprises the character, the radical for um, rain over forest. And I thought it was very clever of my parents to name me that because Lin, which is the, the, the bottom part of the radical, um, which means forest, is also my mother's surname. So her surname hasn't been lost um, within my name because she's managed to kind of slip it in mm -hmm. that's my 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 paternal my maternal grandfather's um surname um and you know i just i just love that the notion and so i i've always kind of worked with the real with the carrying that weight of my name as well and this is also why my 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 western name or my english name is so problematic because it's spelled Eileen, and my mother did name me for the Irish Eileen, which means light. Um, but then because of my Chinese name, she's always called me Eileen. And in Singapore, it's quite common um, for the spelling E-I-L-E and to be pronounced Eileen, um, as opposed to Eileen. But in Australia, it, it is, and in the rest of the world, really, it is pronounced Eileen. So I've gone through my life having to explain my name and to correct people and to have people correct me and say, no, 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 your name really is Eileen, you know, and I have to say, well, yes, it is spelled Eileen, but my mother's brought me up Eileen and because of my 
you know, and it's just very frustrating. But then I also think it's 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 something that that's very interesting and wonderful because my Chinese name, being Elin, is why my English name is Elin,、mm. and my name.、Um, and I, I I feel like, and in my title poem, I think I explore this notion of, you know, the weight of carrying the name Elin, which comes from Helen,、um, the Greek Helen, and Helen of Troy, of course, and. But my mother has always said that I named you Eileen. I named you Eileen because of the notion of light. I want you to be a bright light in this world. And in the weight of my Chinese name, which is a constant nourishing, gentle rain that it has to nourish other people and has to、um, feed almost and pass on to be part of this cycle.、Um, and I think that that's where the whole collection comes from as well. And and. Um, yeah, so I might read Rainforest. Yeah, that、um, would be great. What is to give light must endure burning. It is hard to carry these vows, lost in translation or found. My namesake, so greatly desired, men set fire to a thousand ships. The light they must have given off, each sail a blackened flame, suiting. The sky. I prefer the rain, a cloud cradling drops that fall at an angle over a forest, waiting to receive. The trees in this forest were carved into shell, hot needled and split. The cracks reveal the days to come. This deluge, groundwater rises and collapses the earth. Seeds begin to sprout. The pull of the moon. It's so lovely, and actually, now you've explained、um, more about your name. I didn't understand either the、um, link to Helen of Troy as well、um, with Eileen. So that makes it even、um, more meaningful, gorgeous.、Um, I was wondering as well, Eileen,、um, about the way the book Rainforest has been、um, divided into four parts. So you start in the east, and then south,、um, and then west, which to me seemed like the darkest sort of dark night of the soul part of the book, and then onto the north, where there was a sort of、um, a sort of a sense of solace and、um, a new sort of beginning.、Um, I, I, I found that throughout the book as well. There was so much, especially in the first part, so much watery imagery as well. It's absolutely gorgeous. Did, could you explain a little bit about why you chose to, to separate the、uh, poems into four parts in that way?、Um, for me, the the making of a manuscript comes at the very last stage. I, I know I know some people structure manuscripts differently,、um, but for me, I literally have all the poems that I'm going to think about putting into the book. And I have to print them all out and put them on the floor, and then start to organise them into loose sections and to look at、um, common threads. And it wasn't until quite late that I thought, "Oh, okay, I'm going to structure it this way." And um, um, the way I've structured the poems, which is the four cardinal directions: east, south, west, north. Is、um, and it, it goes in the order of the Chinese cardinal directions because when we say in in the Western world we say north, south, east, west, but in Chinese it's 东南西北 which means east, south, west, north from a clockwise direction from the east. And this also actually comes from my childhood where I、um, 
my maternal grandmother was very, very close to her when I was growing up. And I often, well, she had many, many grandchildren. And I, I'm not very sure why I was the only grandchild who constantly shadowed her. And I, I, I was like her, I was like her little, little friend and I shadowed her. And one of her big passions in life is mahjong. And we would go to these people's homes and random people's homes. And she would sit there for eight hours playing mahjong and I would be like oh what am I gonna do now and and I would always bring books and she'd get really mad with me because the word for books in Chinese su, 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 it sounds like to lose in Chinese. <laughs> it's bad luck to say that such bad luck and she'd always be like oh you know every time I bring you I lose because you're always bringing books 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 you know and and um after the the grown-ups would go for a break or they would go for lunch or something and you know the kids would always take over the mahjong table and the mahjong tiles are like little little bricks little building bricks you know and I was always fascinated with the little section where they indicated uh, the compass directions mm -hmm. and there would be Chinese characters carved into this little tile and you would flip this tile to indicate that a new wind was taken was taking place which meant that um, because it takes four mahjong players to play mahjong and they will always represent one direction and so that depending on which mahjong player was beginning it was it would be the wind it mm. would be their wind you know so um there therefore i think that that's a little bit of what i've done and and, and unconsciously as well i didn't join the dots until much later but unconsciously as well i've got a poem in there called compass yeah. And so obviously that would have been a, could have been an alternate title to the collection with the the four directions, mm. but um, it, it and I like to think of the imagery of the rainforest as the center of it all, you know, and that these four directions, um, you know, that, that the notion of a of a of a great tree in the rainforest setting down roots to get to groundwater, um, receiving rain and also stretching out branches in all four directions while remaining really centered. Mm. So that, that I think was my um, guiding, guiding image and guiding concept for this collection. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I wanted to ask you about Compass in particular, actually, because I felt that it had that quality that you mentioned of Lee Young Lee's being a long poem with uh, a steadiness and an ability to sort of hold the reader's attention as you investigate quite complex ideas and the other quality to that and to many of the poems possibly even all the poems in rainforest and in painting red orchids as well um is this uh, this poetry of the senses and uh i I noticed that particularly because I, I know that the book is dedicated to Judith Beveridge and I've heard her described as a poet of the senses. Um, I'm wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about Judith's influence on your work and how she's been a poetry teacher to you. Um, I love, I love Judith Beveridge. I think she is, you know, quite apart from the fact that she is one of Australia's best poets. She is a really, really good person. She's never been anything but generous and kind um, and just so invested in the work of poetry um, and I was really really I feel really fortunate to have come across her in Sydney University so when I joined Sydney University to do my master's in 2008 
I started with the notion that I would possibly write a screenplay or uh, a book of short stories or even a novel, you know, and never ever thought I would become a poet. And I know that in my short fiction class, there were people who were in Judith Beveridge's class and that everyone would say, oh, you know, poetry is amazing. And I hadn't taken any poetry that semester. And so I felt very much like I, I didn't know what was going on. Um, and we, the, the group of us after short, the short fiction class all went to Sappho one night when um, Peter Boyle was the um, performing poet that night. And I didn't want to be left out. Everyone was going to read a poem, and I, I hadn't known poetry, you know. So I had written a short story that was published on um, Quarterly Literary Review Singapore called "Learning to Swim," and that poem, that short story, was set in um, Kuji at the women's um, pool. And I thought I want to read something tonight, so I just took that short story and broke it down into what I thought was a poem, mm. and I read it that night because I thought, well, what have I got to lose? And Peter Ball actually picked picked the poem as one of the um, winners of that night. And this was when it was run by Roberta. And she always had these wonderful DVDs to give out because Roberta worked as a reviewer. And she always had all these wonderful... I think I think the, the DVD I got was Trans-Siberian. I'm not very sure, but don't, don't quote me on that. Um, but so I, I think if I hadn't... And in 2009, I then signed up for Poetry... Um, and, and, you know, I, I didn't look back and I feel like if I hadn't, I've always said, if I hadn't met Judy Beveridge, I might not be a poet today. And she's always maintained, Eileen, you would have been a poet. You would have found your own way there. And the poet Philip Levine, I, 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 um, I was doing my doctorate on Philip Levine and we were actually in correspondence for a while, um, just before, for the few years before he passed away. And I told him about Judith Beveridge, and he said he wrote to me, and because he he, I, I sent him some links about her work, and he said your poetry teacher is the real deal, you know. And he said she's the real deal, and I feel very happy for you that you ha we all find the teachers we need at the time, and you know obviously I was just so fortunate to have met Judy, um, and the interesting thing is in. I studied with Judy for almost three years at uni, two and a half, um, one of them completely one-on-one -on -one when I was doing my Masters of Letters. And very rarely did we ever study her own work. You know, there, there are poetry workshops where you go in and um, the poet basically just takes you through their work. And that's not a, a bad way to do it. It's one way to do it. But Judy never did, you know, she, she, we, she, we only read one of her poems in which we were looking at process. And so she was showing us drafts and obviously she had access to her own drafts and that was very generous of her. But Judy as a person, she's just so self-effacing. She doesn't want to talk about herself or her own work. Um, but I think she exemplified for us in our, in those classes, what it meant to write poetry and to, obviously she would shape what we were reading, um, and point out what we were doing in our work. And it was just the right fit, you know, because Judy has produced, um, as a teacher, Judy has, has encouraged and mentored poets who write very, very differently from her. And I think that is the mark of a very good teacher because as a teacher, which I train as a teacher as well, your job is not to control what your student does, but to help your student become the best version of themselves. And I was just so fortunate to, to have such a marriage of, of minds, you know, with with 
um, the work of Judy Beveridge um, and I, I suppose my sort of work. I'm, I'm not very sure if my sort of work is like Judy's, to be fair. I think maybe in terms of what Alice was saying, the sort of sensuous imagery um, is is a thing that you maybe share. That's what I feel. Like when I when I read her poems and your poems, I I'm it's it's very much a full body experience, if you know what I mean. So that's something I think. I don't. Maybe you just naturally share that. Maybe she influenced you. I don't know, but that's definitely something that I feel when I read your poems. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And potentially too, this is probably just a sidebar, but I, I've only read um, Devadatta's poems um, and uh, one of the through lines you could draw there would be that you're both willing to explore uh, historical figures really deeply and like really go into that um, whether or not, but I don't know, maybe as a way of exploring things that are relevant to, to your own lives or to your readers' lives. So, yeah, that might be another thing too. But that's definitely not, like, limited to, to the two of you as poets, but just a, a random thought. I agree, Alice. That struck me, actually. That was um, one of the questions that was not really a question observation, but I'm hoping that you'll have some, you know, you'll have some fabulous things to say anyway. How on earth you managed to take so many historical figures and um, really um, historical stories and tales, you know, and then you personalise them so beautifully um, uh, and they're so intimate, you know, it's very public tale. So, for example, in Rainforest there was one, was it um, Daughters, is it? Sorry, I've got it written down. Uh, butterfly, the butterfly poem, sorry. Um, and, you know, it's it's obviously a very well-known Chinese tale and yet it feels so intimate, the poem. I think this is something that you and Judy as well do so beautifully. How do you do it? <laughs> well, I think the, the notion of dramatic monologues and um, reinvention, and I, I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. I recently ran a class on this um, for a school that I was teaching and um, they were they were talking about you know, truth in writing. And so I, I, I used the case study of um, three poems from my first collection, Burning Rice, which is Lu Xun's Wife, Lu Xun, Your Hands, Lu Xun's Wife and Child of the Ocean, which deals with three lives of um, um, three characters in Chinese history that are intertwined. And I suppose the answer to that is what I love to do. I've always been fascinated by history, even though I was terrible at it. Um, and, and because I'm terrible at dates and, and, you know, facts and logic, really. But I could the only way I could access history was through historical fiction. I was one of those really annoying people, you know, that when, when I was like, oh, why didn't you tell me that? You know, I'm always on the lookout for these little details about these historical characters and so in, in, in historical writing. And what I seek to do in my historical poems is to humanise these people. Um, and often with with characters or figures that are very, very well known in history, um, they're so revered, they're almost quite godlike, you know. And I always kind of and, and it, this goes back to my to my grandmother as well, my, my maternal grandmother. She's an extremely practical woman and she's almost quite crude. She's very, very working class. And she loved, as she got older, she loved to shock us by saying all the, like, the rudest things. You know, for example, she would, we would be walking down the street and we'd be like, oh, you know, why, why is that, that shopping mall so crowded? There's nothing really good about it. And she would say this Hokkien phrase, like a proverb, which was really terrible. And it translates into 
a, a new toilet is good to have a poo in. <laughs> and it's just really basic things and it's just so rude. And, and But it always made me think, you know what? And I, th I, I can't remember where, I think it was a Bob Dylan, right? Um, even the president of the United States must sometimes stand naked. So the notion that we are all human and we all have failings and we all have uh, have regrets and dreams and weaknesses as well as strength. And it's just by a quirk of, of, of fate or history and, and nature that these people have become very, very well known as historical figures. So what I try to do is to unpick that. And I also love the notion of the gaps between stories um, of what is not being said. And it's, it's almost like sometimes that the less we know about a character, the better, because the more I can make up. Uh, and mm. I, I, when I first started writing, and I, I didn't actually, um, I, I, I think when I started writing these historical poems, I hadn't actually um, um, clued that Judy Beveridge has written all these poems. And I think she started um, doing that big series in Wolf Notes. Um, and it happened by accident for me. So when, when I first, my first, the first poem I wrote that was in that vein was Lucian, Your Hands. And that became my first published poem. It was published in Mianjin and it was also taken for the best Australian poems, which was just like crazy for, for, for a beginning poet to, to say, what, what was going on? That was just my one poem, you know? And to, so I was, I was reading, uh, I was reading a series of letters, so I, I read constantly, and I was see, reading a series of letters in the voice of Xu Guangping, who's the lover of Lu Xun, and I was just so struck by that note in her letter, how desperate she was um, for his attention, and also the unfolding of what happened to her in life, you know, that she, she was a young um, writer, beginning writer, and then she became essentially his secretary after she became his lover, and then his his life partner um, and it just struck me that there's actually no record of her writing except in her letters to him mm. and so I thought well I'm going to write the letter that never was written that mm. was in her mind you know and and also I thought she was 19 when she fell in love with him and he was 45 and I thought well, what's so good about this man you know <laughs> why you're 19 and I thought, oh, maybe he's got really good hands. So that's where the poem came from. And it was a little bit. Um, and at that time, I was very nervous about writing a sensual poem about these figures. You know, but obviously they had to have sex because they had a child. You know, and, and I think this is something that's not often um, explored. You know, and this, this dependence between a man and a woman and the sexual contract that exists as well. So... Um, so I, I suppose the answer is I just try to follow my nose. When I'm interested in a character, I, I read whatever I can about them and then I humanize them. I think, you know, they're just people. What were they afraid of? What did they want in life? Um, and, you know, it, like in Blade Runner, um, Blade Runner 2, it's, it, they said that the best, the best, um, the best, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically the notion of the best lies have something of the truth in them, mm. have some creator in them. So obviously, well, well, these poems and like Judith Beveridge's poems are not about us in any way, literally. They are also about us, you know, and maybe that's why they work.
because they are also about everyone else who reads them. And, and you know, I like to think of my poems as, as gifts and that this here is the poem and all I do in the poem is to try and pay attention and bear witness and offer it to you to take what you want from it. Absolutely. Um, I found that in the whole, um, the whole of Rainforest, actually, the whole, it felt to me like a very receptive book. It was this open expanse and it was this uh, sense of the tree and the rain. It was like this kind of closed ecosystem. So the same thing, we're feeding each other, you know, it's going round and round. Yes. That's a really wonderful um, concept of, you know, we're we're feeding each other because a a lot of my work is that of teaching and that was really my first love in life. You know, I, I wanted to be a teacher. I taught in Singapore, and one of my greatest joys is going back to the classroom um, and teaching poetry, speaking about my work, and it's just so wonderful to help. You know, and it's important as well, as well I think, as an Asian Australian poet to stand in a classroom and say, "This is what I've done." You know, and and I, I never really understood the notion of representation um, clearly. Uh, before I became a writer and before I moved to Australia because growing up in Singapore I was part of the dominant um, cultural group of um, Singaporean Chinese people and which is really it's really quite confronting when when I moved to Australia and people think of me as East Asian because I certainly don't think of myself as East Asian because I'm Southeast Asian mm. and you know and and I think I've explored that in my poem country yeah where you know, when I, when I go to Japan and people think I'm Japanese and well, I, people think I'm Korean in Korean restaurants here. Um, people from China don't think I'm Chinese. People from Singapore don't think I'm Singaporean. So where do I belong, you know? Mm. And the notion of the liminal space as something that can be very powerful as well too. And I think this is what I try to explore in those historical poems as well. You know, what is what is the, the space that where, where truth is not... Um, fixed is also a place where there's a lot of power to explore to explore alternate um, interpretations of identity and meanings you know what I have to just jump in here sorry Alice I'm dominating now with my questions I'm just getting very excited by your answers Ellie Um, it just is a perfect segue into the poem that we published on Verity La I think Measure um, which you very interestingly to me um, uh, started with an epilogue by a a poem by Adrian Rich um, North American time and so when I um, when we published this poem I was thinking about the relationship between the epilogue and the poem because to me the poem was quite enigmatic and I was thinking about how they linked so I don't know would you maybe be able to read um that one for us and then give us or give me a little insight <laughs> sure so um I use I use epigraphs a lot in my um in my poetry and I think it's because I like to acknowledge the um the source of my inspirations for the work but also I think epigraphs um serve as a, for, a, a sort of a framework um to say Look, we're engaging with work and it's again back to your first question Alice about conversations you know I feel like I'm in conversation with these poets um, all the time and, and, and sometimes the poem that follows isn't always directly linked to the epigraph but obviously um, it's up to the reader then to find the commonalities or differences um, and I'm really pleased that this poem was published on Verity La it's called Measure Everything we write will be used against us or against those we love. 
the innocence of cornflowers, a dimpled wheel-thrown cup. Glazed on the inside, my hand takes its pleasure from the rough. Words, fallen soldiers on a page, they come and they go. Memory as surprising as a laden donkey picking its way towards the church at the top of a hill. On this island, even the cats sleep with one eye open. The dark, the, the wind, the sea, these cold hours measured by candlelight. When I um, was getting that poem up on um, to the uh, website for publication, I decided to add a link to the original so everyone could sort of make that connection themselves and explore the connection between the um, the poem by Adrienne Rich and your poem and I came across um, a video where she actually read the poem um, I think it was in 97 to um, I think she was a university giving a reading and she prefaced the reading of that poem um, North American Time by talking about um, a lot about political correctness and and she said it was um, sometimes used as a bludgeon in her opinion um, and something that um, cages the poet sometimes if the poet sort of falls into that trap I suppose um, within a particular time and place and set of values and beliefs and I think she was sort of saying this can be quite limiting as a creative person and so once she sort of prefaced her poem by that and then I read your poem and then I was thinking oh so I found that very interesting was that something that informed your poem at all or is that just something I've read in there. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't aware of this reading and I, I just love, obviously I'm very familiar with Adrienne Rich and her work, her poetic work, as well as all her essays and, you know, her own evolution as a writer and she is very political, but um, no, I wasn't aware of that and I love that. I love the intertextuality and how the poem has a life beyond the page and that the poem has a life beyond me. You know, it, 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 I think one of the things I like to say when I go to schools, because students will ask you all these questions, and I love to try to answer at least one question with, I don't know, mm -hmm. because I want to reinforce to them that sometimes the creator, you know, the, the act of writing and creating is such a mystery, even to the creator sometimes. And so I don't think, I think it would be foolish to expect one person to have all the answers. And this is where the notion of a collective unconscious comes in, right? You know, the notion that we all contribute to exploring the mystery of the work. Um, so, but coming back to the poem, you know, um, I really, the, the quote from that poem really resonated um, with me because painting red orchids in particular as a collection was very, very scary to write, you know, because personally I'd, I'd gone through a very um, devastating uh, breakup in 2014, the end of a very long marriage. And one of the things that was important to me was that I respect the privacy of my ex-partner, but at the same time to try to be emotionally truthful to myself in the work. And it was very, very scary for me to when I started writing poems that um, were obviously evidence of me trying to process my emotions about these things and then to worry, to have to worry about whether everything we write will be used against us. Mm. It's those that we love, you know. I, I was wondering, um, Elin, if um, 
now that you're experiencing, you know, quite a lot of success with your poetry and so on, and then, um, you know, feeling that possibly there's a burden on you to be a representative of, you know, a, a minority, um, in a, it, does that weigh upon you as well? Um, it's definitely there. I definitely feel the burden of representation. But it, it is also very egotistical to think that one Asian person can stand in for mm. all Asian people. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the Asian Australian writing community is so diverse mm. and is so complex. And um, I think while it's important to have visibility and numbers, it, it, you, you can't purport to speak for the experience of others. One Asian, one, one Asian Australian experience is not interchangeable for others. And I think what I like to try to do is to um, help open that platform, a, a platform or platforms for more diverse Asian Australian um, writings and communities. And I think that there have been a lot of writers who um, um, have done that, you know, and we're just, I'm just a very small part of a, a movement, I think. And I'm very grateful for the Asian Australian writing community, um, especially with um, Peril Magazine and um, Liminal Magazine. They've just been um, so supportive and quite groundbreaking in that. And to feel like you're part of something bigger, I think, is very important. Mm -hmm.